Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I invited longtime Wharton Business and Law School professor G. Richard Schell to be today's guest and specifically asked him if he'd be willing to do double duty. It was Richard whom Wharton specifically chose to reinvent its entire MBA program curriculum. And I wanted you to hear how America's number two ranked business school fully transformed its focus under Richard's direction. My underlying hope is that by providing you with an insider's view into the future of leadership development at Wharton, you'll gain a deeper awareness of how you might seek to further grow your own managerial skill set. And Richard is also a very successful author whose new book, The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values and Advance Your Career, tackles a truly challenging workplace dilemma. How do you speak up for your values when you observe or experience unethical behavior at work? So let's ask the question, how big of a problem is this? Well, according to research Richard cites in his book, 40% of U.S. workers witness unethical or illegal conduct on the job in any given year and 25% report feeling pressured by their own bosses to behave unethically or even illegally. Here are some real-world examples that Wharton School MBA students have experienced in their young careers and which they shared with Richard. Fast-track colleague elbows their way up the corporate ladder by faking sales reports. An entrepreneur boss asks his employees to lie to would-be investors. And a team leader is a serial sexual harasser. The question in all these scenarios is, what should you do in response if you were experiencing these very same situations? And according to Richard, few people have ever been trained or prepared to deal with this unsavory part of professional life. And when they occur, they're faced with a gut-wrenching choice. Do I go along to get along, or do I risk my job by speaking up for what I know is right? Well, we all know how we should behave in these situations, but not necessarily how to maneuver in ways that will allow us to speak our conscience without having to face severe career consequences. So the second part of our conversation with Richard is going to focus on how you can recognize when these kinds of conflicts may be coming, know how to spot them, and then learn how to skillfully resolve them. And with that as a preface, let me welcome you to the podcast, G. Richard Shell. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, it's nice to talk to you again. We'll get right to it. You directed a team of professors from many disciplines to reinvent Wharton's MBA program curriculum. So I'd like to do is I just thought this was such a fascinating experience for you and why they picked you. So start off by telling what disciplines the school was emphasizing when you joined the faculty of Wharton in 1980. 586, and what you intentionally added and subtracted during your most recent curriculum reinvention? Great. That's a stupendous question. The truth is, when I joined the faculty in 1986, as an assistant professor, I had the mole's eye view, not the top of the mountain. Because when you're an assistant professor in a place like Wharton, you're digging as hard and as fast as you can to get tenure. And so whatever else is happening in the rest of the school, it's a matter of coincidence that you notice it. But I will say this, the first six months I was there, I happened to have the good fortune to have, I was a legal scholar, and I had the good fortune to have had a subject that was argued in the United States Supreme Court in the term that was in that year. And it was about securities industry arbitration. And I got an op-ed piece published in the Wall Street Journal on that case on the day it was argued. And I think uniquely in the set of professors that had started with me, I immediately got a note from the dean 
you know, saying congratulations, you know, and I kind of went, oh, I exist. And so <laughs> the Wharton School, I think, really considered itself a finance school. And the Wall Street Journal was its house organ. So it was no coincidence that Dean was paying such close attention to it and that my name popped up and he immediately wanted to know who I was. Over the years, been at it a long time, and and so when you're at a business school like Wharton for a long time, you're acutely aware of the cyclical nature of the economy because the business school is counter-cyclical. So every business crash is associated with us in an increase in applications because as the layoffs hit, then people say, well, what's a good use of my time? Oh, this is when I'll go to business school. So then they apply and we have this rush the other cycle, though, that's taking place is where those applications are coming from. And over time, they stopped coming as much from Wall Street and started coming more from other parts of the big business sector, whether it was big brand companies like P&G or whether it was consulting companies like McKinsey. And then, of course, in 2001, it was a big rush from tech people because the dot-com bubble burst, and so that was the big surge. And then in 2008, we had a surge of everybody. But somewhere back around 2001, 2002, there was a movement within the faculty to do more with leadership and sort of emotional intelligence and teamwork and a little less with regression analysis, but not to take regression analysis out of the picture. It was just carve out some space for the leadership and teamwork piece. So that movement had happened in the sort of early, mid-2000s. And then when I picked up the job of trying to revise the curriculum again early in the 2010 era, we had that to build on. And so we built on it and expanded on it in a really significant way. And I'm a poet, uh, not a quant, and the, those are the two mm -hmm. sort of archetypes. I'm literally a poet. I mean, I studied poetry in college, and I wrote a verse drama with Anthony Burgess, the guy who wrote A Clockwork Orange. So I'm actually unique in that respect on the Wharton faculty in the extreme version of, of this poet side. But I think the group of people that have my passions had grown, and we then were able in each department to sort of instigate an expansion on the leadership curriculum. And in the new one, it included much more individual attention, not just academic treatment. So in the new one, we created opportunities for every MBA student to get personal coaching, leadership coaching throughout their two-year process, which was unique. We also had a kind of guided journey of leadership development that, again, took place over the whole two years. I, in the wake of the publication of Springboard, the book that you and I talked about last time we met, which is a book on the meaning of success and sort of how do you find it, I instigated a program at Wharton called P3, which is Purpose, Principles, and Passions. And it's not a required part, but it hit the culture of the school in such a way that now, like, Two-thirds of the students volunteer to be part of it, and it's another and a pure play example of the kind of transformation that's happened. Groups of six to seven MBA students meet for six consecutive weeks for three hours at a session, and they go through a peer-coached, guided set of queries 
on who they are, what their long-term goals are, uh, how did their families influence them, when were they happy in their lives and why, what are their long-term aspirations for the value they want to create in their careers. And it just took off. We started with like 15 students who did it the first time, and now we've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of students doing it every semester. And that's just indicative itself. It's intrinsic motivation. No grades or nothing. They do it on their own time and in their own way. We give them the structure. And it's run through the McNulty Leadership Center which has grown as part of this. It got an endowment from the McNulty family, and now it's a real steady state operation that just does a whole lot of different leadership activities. So how do you explain this transformation? So you said that it began as a finance school. I think its reputation is as a finance school, as are most MBA programs, right? And you said that you cut out some space from regression analysis to give them, you know, some focus of leadership. This is just 20 years ago. But now you're saying things like purpose, principles, and passions, which is a quantum leap from really focusing on finance. So what's happening? What are you responding to what's happening in the world Like, how does Wharton decide that these things, you're cutting out a lot more space for leadership is kind of my question. And it's interesting. It's not just that the faculty decided to carve out some more space. I think the students have decided to carve out more space. And so they're probably, you'd ask 10 people to get 10 answers. But my answer to that question is these students who are coming from the mid-2000s forward are themselves highly aware of the fragile nature of a career in finance. They've seen the dot-com bubble or heard about it. They certainly experienced the 2008 Great Recession. And now they've seen some of those students that I just finished teaching, they just graduated, graduated from college into the 2008 crisis, and now they're graduating into their MBA years in the COVID-19 crisis. So there's something very vivid when you realize how fragile professional life is that I think motivates you to think about what's really important and what are you going to take with you? So it's partly they've seen that and they've felt it. I think it's also the case that they're more mobile. And I think it used to be you, you went to Goldman Sachs, you stayed at Goldman Sachs, you were probably you know, up the ladder to Goldman Sachs, and then you got to be a partner of Goldman Sachs. And that very, very seldom happens now. So there's a sense of your education and your personal development as being a continuous function, not just a degree-related function. And so we teach them and kind of model lifelong learning as what's going to make their life satisfying and fulfilling. And they're coming to us with that craving. I don't know that they've all articulated it that way Mm -hmm. themselves. But they come and they see these opportunities and they grab hold of them and they come to see that as the goal, as the, if you're going to have a successful life, it's going to include a successful career, but it's not going to include a successful career in either one One company or or even one industry. And so they're much more entrepreneurial, both because they want to be entrepreneurs, that's another development, but because they think of the career in entrepreneurial ways, even if they're going to navigate within an industry. So how do you see them, so your graduates, let's say five years from now, 10 years from now, 
as a result of how you've changed the curriculum to include what we're talking about here. By the way, giving students individual coaching is brilliant, but you've created a very different curriculum now. What's the outcome going to be? What will leaders look like? These graduates, five years from now, 10 years from now, when they're CEOs of organizations, how are they going to behave in relationship to what we've traditionally seen in those roles? CEOs, CFOs, chief human resource officers, whatever. I think they're going to be much more focused on authentic leadership as a vocation. I mean, I haven't even scratched the surface of stuff that's going on within the student body. I just mentioned the one that I helped to get started. But one of the biggest student clubs now is called the Storytellers Club. And they come together on a regular basis and they have kind of a hot mic and they tell their life stories to each other and are kind of vulnerable with each other about the conflicts they've encountered and the challenges they've overcome. And we have a much more diverse student body now. They're from many, many countries, many different backgrounds. The average age at Wharton, now this is different than Stanford and Harvard. The average age at Wharton is like 28 to 29 years old for MBAs. The average age at Stanford and Harvard is closer to 25 or 26. And what they've specialized in is taking students who went to a top undergraduate institution or or did very, very well at whichever one they went to, and then they majored in something other than business or economics, and then they work for a couple of years, and then they go to MBA. And it's like they're going to be the accelerator that's going to take these generalists and give them the business stuff and then shoot them out into the world. We take a much more international group of students and a much older group of students, and they're mature. I've taught in my classes, you know, former members of the Secret Service of the Israeli Mossad, you know, the people that protected the uh, prime minister over there. They come with combat experience. I've had numerous Navy SEALs and Marine Special Forces officers. They come with children. (laughs) Yeah, so they have a deeper life experience that they're relating to. They have a little bit greater understanding of meaning. Tell me, by the way, the storytellers, what's the attraction there? Why do you want to go to a meeting and tell people your life story? I think that's part of what it is that they see as their leadership journey. I think if you're going to be an effective leader, and to coin your phrase and lead from the heart, I think you need to speak from the heart. And it's not that easy to do that, even if you're oriented toward your own emotional intelligence or understanding yourself in a kind of 360-degree way. Being willing and able to articulate that as part of what you're trying to convey to people in a leadership role is not easy. You can look like you're just a simpering, self-absorbed, inarticulate person, and you're not going to lead anybody. You know, discredit yourself. So I think that the impulse to learn how to tell their story is an impulse to give them that tool in their leadership basket that they will be able to use to inspire, to motivate, and also to show that they're just students too. You know, they're just struggling with their own life and they want to struggle along with the people they're leading. They don't want to show themselves as some sort of fully polished. I love that. Well, do they get feedback? So if you tell them, so what does the feedback look like? The reason I'm asking this question is because I'm actually thinking some savvy listener is going to do this with their own team. (laughs) Sure. And so I'm just curious as to, because I I just think 
General Shinseki, since you're mentioning military people, once said that you can't manage or lead someone unless you know their story. But I think the inverse is also true. You can't lead unless you know your own story and really fully develop it and fully understand it. And in many cases, heal it (laughs) because some of the stories aren't that good, right? No, no, they're trauma stories. And I think you learn to share your uncertainties and When you can be a little vulnerable in that way, I think you encourage others to admit that they're not always right. And that opens the door to teamwork that's going to find much more quickly and candidly what the problems are. They're going to be able to tell the truth to each other about how they feel about it and what, you know, they think about the solutions that are there. And they're going to be more gifted at connecting to others using the kind of metaphors and, and experiences that they will be able to share. I mean, it doesn't have to be some sort of public speaking thing. Imagine a team sitting together and you've got an Afghan war veteran, since Afghanistan is uh, a most recent kind of salient story about the misuse of American power. But you've got an Afghan war veteran who's on the team. In their MBA experience, they were part of the Storytellers Club. In fact, there was a, a wonderful, amazing African-American woman who was a, an army vet who'd been to Vietnam, who was the president of the Storytellers Club a few years ago. And she was one of my students, and she was telling me about it. You're in this team, and so you want to make a point. And you can make a point by reference to your own experience in the form of a story that will come across, be vivid, make the case and do it in such a short way that everybody gets it and it's credible. And it isn't like that data and the analysis is irrelevant, but it's the meaning of the data that people need to know about. Once you've got the data on the table, that's only a third of the journey toward a decision. You've got to figure out what the data means. We didn't always think like that, though, in business, right? The data is the data. Yeah, no, that's the end of the argument. I like to say the data data is only just one part of any argument, and it's not the final part of it. So the students today are coming with all this experience, they're coming with these aspirations, and they're coming with a sense of life as a journey where it just keeps going. It's not a mountaintop and you get there and then that's it. Okay, I'm done. You mentioned African-Americans and it made me think your new dean is not just a woman, but she's also African-American, which I think is making quite a statement about your university. Yeah, and Um, she's a leadership scholar to boot. Tell us about her. She's a very interesting, articulate and charismatic person in her way. She's not charismatic like, you know, she gives motivational speeches. I've been department chair for the last 10 years and been at a lot of meetings with her over the COVID emergency because the university was changing the course on us about every three months and we had to process what to do next. She's understated and she's thoughtful and she's not afraid to tell her story. In the middle of the Black Lives Matter emergency that summer of 2020, she was right there with us and was able to just articulate the anxieties of being a mother, an African-American mother, where you have a son that might be perceived in certain ways and it didn't matter what you know her social status was or anything else. It's a crisis for every Black family to have a young male out in the world in any 
vigorous way. And, you know, it really kind of personalized it and humanized it for us in a way that was very effective. So I think it's a complicated place. She came just as COVID was starting. I mean, she was she literally took the job in the middle of the summer of 2020 when we all were coming out of COVID and we had one dean leaving, another dean coming, and she couldn't meet any of us in person, which it was all on Zoom. So I really felt like she did an incredible job of connecting with the tools she had to connect. I expect her to be quite, let's put it this way, I don't think this will be her last job in academe. <laughs> Well, I just think it's impressive that Wharton has broken the mold in terms of, right? It does speak to the evolution that we've been talking about. I want to transition into talking about your book. And you not only teach this course called Responsibility in Business, but your book places the spotlight on character issues like honesty and fairness and justice and courage and conscience, title of your book. So, While it should be obvious why you feel it's essential that future leaders become deeply grounded in these values, tell us in your own words the key reasons, because I think this just steps into what we've been talking about. Like, I don't necessarily know, and you can challenge this assumption, that these were topics that were given much emphasis at Wharton over its history. Yeah, I I mean, I do think that Joseph Wharton had them in mind when he founded the school. And I'm pretty sure Benjamin Franklin had them in mind mm-hmm. when he founded the University of Pennsylvania. And then it may have skipped 100 or 200 <laughs> years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Joseph Wharton was a Quaker. And uh, he not only founded the Wharton School, he also funded Swarthmore College out in the main line, which is a very deeply Quaker school. This book and the emphasis that I put on conscience and on uh, living your values in the workplace you know, we talked about our students, and this book is responsive to students. They challenge me to, in this course on responsibility, to help them do better with values conflicts that they'd experienced between college and MBA. And they came with these incredibly vivid stories of what bosses had pressured them to do and what they'd felt pressured to do by peers and some of which they'd felt reasonably good about, some of which led to them quitting and and coming to the MBA program because they were so disgusted by what was going on. And so I felt this really strong push from them, give us tools so that next time we'll do better. And There's a lot out there in business ethics about how to think about difficult ethical problems and to apply, you know, utilitarian or Kantian reasoning to discuss, you know, the problem of the climate change or the world hunger crisis. And there's nothing, I'm not minimizing any of that. It's mostly pretty high level theory. But what I felt was what was missing was a practical blow by blow manual that you could turn to when you know that the sales manager is hitting on the summer intern and the summer intern is shy and conflict averse and very unwilling to make an issue of it because she doesn't want to lose the opportunity to get a job offer. And there you are with this knowledge and what do you do? And it requires organizational intelligence. It requires the ability to communicate effectively with both the intern, with others in the organization, to try to make sure that this guy gets stopped. It requires a commitment to knowing what's important and 
you know, sexual harassment is a wrong, and we all disgusted by it. But the thing that I urge people to keep in mind when they have a values conflict like that at work is, hey, it's your duty to protect not just the person who's the victim, but all the future victims that are going to become victims if you don't do anything. And so you really have to think about what your duty is to others as an agent who's trying to exercise compassion, protect people's well-being, do some good in the world. And it's not just, you know, shouting about social justice. It's about actually preventing harm. Well, let me take you back a little bit here and set the stage for our audience, because you have some stunning facts in here, Richard, which is that 40% of workers witness unethical or illegal conduct in any given year, and it's often their own bosses who pressure them or others to behave unethically. So let's start with, I want to get into some of the dilemmas that you describe in the book, but before we do that, what's happening in our workplaces that explains this? Yeah, I mean, it's worse than that now, Mark. I wrote the book, of course, a couple of years ago. And as you know, publishers sometimes take a while to get books published. Mm -hmm. So it came out this year in June. But the most recent data that we have on workplace misconduct, which was published in a 2021 survey in, by the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, 63% of middle managers reported pressure from bosses to violate their own firm's codes of conduct in 2020. 79% of all employees reported retaliation when they spoke up. I don't know what happened. There's speculation about the fact that we were all locked down working from home that maybe turned loose the demons in a way that they hadn't been loosened earlier. Maybe people felt more sort of freer to just cut the corners and get everybody to join them to do that. Corporate cultures in the most recent turn of the wheel have definitely gone downhill in the ethical department. So the employees, your listeners, are not going to encounter less of this. They're going to encounter more. And I think that the challenge for any individual, which is, is career or conscience. You know, that's the puzzle. What do we do here? Career or conscience? And then when people frame it that way, they go, well, I've got my family to protect and I've got my insurance to protect and I'm vulnerable here. So I'm just going to lower my head and just stay out of trouble and just, you know, let them keep going. Well, not only that, but there's what you just mentioned, which is the retaliation, which I think is probably the greatest fear. It's not yes. just like I could lose my job, but somebody could make your life miserable miserable if you spoke yeah. up. So yeah. if you're talking to HR heads or CEOs, start with like, what's the solution to this lack of integrity? Because if it's this pervasive, you know, it's hard to be the individual person with a conscience who's going to speak up and say, hey, everything I'm seeing here is pretty dark. That's not going to be supported very well in a culture yes. that's, you know, you know right? right? Yeah, no, that's corrupt. I think the options break down to look away, walk away, try to be creative and make the problem go away, <laughs> or face the problem and lead the revolution. <laughs> the higher you are in the organization, the more leverage you have to affect the culture in two ways. I think the biggest levers for leaders who have position power is looking at who you have in charge of the units and who you're hiring. And those are two tremendous levers. And if you're interviewing for character and if you're interviewing for integrity, you can be more selective. I think that where culture goes wrong is when all they do is focus on output 
and not on process. If all they're measuring are the metrics, are the productivity metrics, then they're quickly going to go south. If they're measuring the process metrics, and that's sort of time spent consulting others, the process of vetting ideas across other units, of getting review by corporate ethics and compliance, as opposed to just trying to get around them, then you're going to have a chance to leverage the culture. Are you seeing organizations do this? In other no, words, well, I mean, it sounds like this is a critical need in business, though, right? There has to be some internal validation of, is the manager you work for trustworthy? Is the manager you work for likely to break rules or, you know, break the laws or intimidate people or any of those things? Or companies, do you recommend that they do that? I think what people talk about, what people take seriously, what the CEO talks about, and then takes actions that are in some ways sacrificing other goals to the goal of having an ethical process or an ethical culture. When they see that, when the employees see that, the speak up culture grows. People now kind of go, well, there's a guy at the top who is going to protect me. And so I'm going to be willing to use this system of anonymous complaints or whatever the various systems are to try to join him or her in, in turning this around. So the other big lever is incentives. You know, if you put salespeople on a certain kind of incentive, you can guarantee that they're going to cheat. It's not even that they're bad people. They're just going to follow the money and they're going to cut the corner that gets them to more of it more quickly. So incentives are incredibly important in how you create the culture that's going to lead to a better outcome for people. But at the end of the day, I'm taking this from the bottom up. I mean, the book, The Conscience Code, is really a manual for people at the bottom or in the middle. How to engage collectively. My first piece of advice is never take this on alone. And incrementally build out the answer by spreading within the unit you're in with the culture you have to the people who are like-minded and then present a coalition to the people of influence. And this is what we've seen at Google, Wayfair. There are a lot of companies where employees have managed without unions, although I'm in favor of unions, to collectively get together. Social media is very powerful these days and protest. The firm's giving bonuses to sexual predators. Mm -hmm. We won't stand for it. Everybody at Google walk out at two o'clock on this day all over the world. And tens of thousands did. The New York Times covers it. The firm changes its policy. The board of directors gets the message. And now they have a new sexual harassment policy and different decision-making criteria at Google. So it's possible to be someone who decides they're going to do the right thing. But as Justice Ginsburg so greatly put it in one of her great quotes, lead with your values, but lead in a way that others will follow you. And I think you can be an agent of change from almost any level of the organization if you have the toolkit. What are some of the most chronic, so let's make this a more practical conversation here. What are some of the most common ethical and moral dilemmas that people face at work? Like, give me two examples of the ones that people can nod their head and go, yeah, I've experienced that. And then we'll get into your recommendation, by the way, don't take it on alone is something I really want to dig into with you. Yeah. So, I mean, the classic ones that I hear the most from in the classroom, I have a whole file that's just sexual harassment and assault. So the level of sexual misconduct going on in organizations is chronic. 
And we just, you know, very recently had the governor of New York resign. Uh, and people now newly feel empowered to take on some of the most powerful people who've been getting away with it. And it's way past me too, but it's still happening and people are feeling increasingly empowered to speak up. So sexual misconduct of various kinds, bucket number one. I would say bosses pressuring employees to cut corners in ways that the employees know are wrong. This could be private equity company that's asking an associate to produce a misvalued report on the portfolio of the company because they're raising money and they don't want to reveal that the current portfolio actually has some value losers. So they delay the revaluing until after the fundraise so that they can then mark them down afterwards. They could be reports where they're falsifying data for a client if they're consulting to show better performance or better metrics on internet advertising, for example. There are a lot of really vague, hard to metricize items that people get paid for. And bosses in firms facing perverse incentives and deadlines, and I'm not saying these people are bad people, they're just, they're mistaken and they've lost their way, are pressuring others down the line to misbehave in ways that are fraudulent. And those are two very common ones. So how do you become a what you call a, a person of conscience? So how do you convince someone to be this person of conscience when, like you said a minute ago, they need a job, they need the income, they need the benefits, they don't want to lose their career because they stood up and got punished for it. And most of the time, I think, as you point out, is that people don't feel that they have the power. Yep. I don't think I have to convert anyone to being a person of conscience. I think everybody but a psychopath is a person of conscience. And the psychopaths, there are 3% of them out there. And so they have no conscience, no values, no empathy. And they are often in the leadership positions of the firms that go the furthest off the reservation. But the perspective that I encourage people to take is to first remember that they have values. The values that allow them to get up and feel that they're a morally honorable person in the morning and the way they treat their families, their communities, are the same values that ought to be prevailing in their workplace. And it's a dangerous road for themselves to have a force field to go through on their commute where they drop the values somewhere on the third exit of the uh, freeway and then reestablish them when they do the reverse commute. So I think they are people of conscience. The question is how to be effective as a person of conscience. And that's where the steps and the process come into play. The other thing that I try to emphasize for people is, again, what I've heard from my students. When you get this wrong, when you become complicit in wrongdoing, when you are part of the course of silence while people are victimized for their race or their gender or the way they appear or look and they attract predators, whatever the characteristic is, you injure yourself. It's almost as if you take a knife and cut yourself. And the regret, the remorse, the sense of a compromised life, the fact that you're now living a kind of incoherent life, really, when it comes to values. You're going home and telling your kids, be honest, and then you're going to work and putting up with dishonesty or even committing it when you feel the pressure to do so. That, in the end, is a prescription for depression, alienation, alcoholism, serious disconnect between your soul and your ability to function. 
So I think the long-term costs of not acting are things people need to remember. Now, add to that that people actually change their jobs 12 times during an average career. So when you think, oh, it's career or conscience, you may actually be elevating your career when you speak up with your conscience for two reasons. One, it could be that within the organization, you've got a bad boss, but you've actually got a pretty good culture and your actions will resonate with the larger culture and you'll be elevated for having pointed out that this is Have you seen that happen? happen. Sure. I mean, there are plenty of examples, again, from my students, from some of the big scandals that where internal auditors were able to effectively blow the whistle on their bosses and ended up being lionized uh, by the corporate sector and elevated to very high levels of responsibility in their organizations and in other organizations because they showed that they knew how to pull the levers that internal auditing has and do it effectively. And courage too, right? Well, I'm going to quibble with the word courage. Okay. Because... You know, I've trained a lot of people in negotiation, influence, and executive education. I've mentioned I've had special forces people in my MBA classes. I've talked to them about this courage thing. And most people don't set out to be courageous. They don't identify with the label of being courageous. What they identify with is the label of doing the right thing for the right reason, of having a duty which is stressful and painful, and they wish that maybe the day had not brought this duty to them, but they are people who take their duties seriously and they persevere with those duties. Other people call them courageous because they don't cut and run. Now, that's cowardice. I think we can safely say that when you're a coward, you know it and you feel it. But when you're courageous, I don't think you're experiencing courage. I think you're experiencing persistence in the face of a goal that relates to values, that relates to your duties to others. And all the books I've read, all the people I've spoken with who are, in my view, certifiably courageous, would not identify courage as one of their character traits. That's fascinating. Other people do. Other people do. But it's a label we attribute to others when their conduct is difficult. So you're saying that there's no moment where somebody says, okay, I'm seeing a wrong here and I'm going to do something about it and be courageous. You're saying that doesn't happen. That's interesting. No, I, I think what they do is they say, here's something I have to do something about because I couldn't live with myself if I didn't, which is a kind of, I know my future self is going to be so guilty and feel so remorseful that I couldn't live with myself. And so I have to act now to protect myself from that feeling later. Is that conscience? Is that what you define as conscience? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Think about the word conscience. Who's the most famous advocate for conscience in American culture classically? Jiminy Cricket. You know, the Walt Disney character, always let your conscience be your guide. Well, Jiminy Cricket is the little good angel that's on one shoulder, and there's this tempting bad angel on the other shoulder. And Jiminy Cricket's basically saying, you're going to feel really guilty if you don't do this. There's actually a lot of research on guilt proneness. Some people are, most, a lot of people actually, are very sensitive to the feeling of guilt. If they get the wrong change in a grocery store to their benefit, they will always give it back because they don't want to walk out of that store and feel guilty about it. Now, you could say that's sort of weak, you know, why can't you just steal the money? But what's really going on is guilt and conscience are totally and tightly related to one another. If you have no sense of guilt, you're a psychopath. 
Because guilt is that inner compass that tells you when you're committing a wrong that's hurting someone else. Now, that's different than shame. That's another very important motive that goes into people behaving well is the fear of shame. But shame is not an internal state of violating a value. It's the fear of being judged by others for being someone who's not worthy because they violated a value. And they're both perfectly legitimate. I mean, and a lot of times people do the right thing because they fear shame if it's revealed that they didn't behave well. And they feel guilty about it because they know that that's their value and they're being inconsistent with their value. So let's talk about how you actually recommend doing this. So I'm observing someone who's being sexually harassed. I'm observing somebody who's doing something unethical. Maybe my boss, maybe somebody else. One of the tips that you had that I think is brilliant is that you find somebody else to go in with you. So if you're going to speak up, find somebody else who agrees with you so that it's two people, not one. Speak about that and then any other of the most important things that people should be thinking about if they're going to raise their voice. Sure. I think the most important single thing to start with is something I've come to call the Oda Loop. It's a process. It's a four-step, actually a four-and-a-half-step process that once you know that you've got this puzzle, what am I going to do? I know something's wrong. What am I going to do? You don't just feel the anxiety and isolation and fear of consequences of that moment. You will feel those things. But then you say, okay, there's a process, and it starts with O-O-D-A. O, observe what's going on. So, That means you have to actually turn and face it. There are a lot of rationalizations that immediately kick in where you want to turn away and not see it. So the first thing you have to do is own up to looking at it, which also means you can gather some evidence, which, you know, you may be mistaken. You know, maybe what you perceive to be some value violations actually not at all. So you observe. The second step, and this is where consulting with others can be the most important, you own the problem. You decide, I'm going to take some responsibility for this. I may be little, I may be a summer intern, I may be a summer employee, I may be a warehouse worker, but I think something ought to be done and I'm going to take ownership. Now, at that point, it's crucial that you share what your perceptions are with someone else that you think will listen to you. I mean, this is not go to the person and accuse them of being a wrongdoer. This is talk to a mentor if you have one, talk to a colleague and say, is this something that, you know, you've observed or it's, you know, if something like this happened to you, what do you think you would do? So you're beginning to get your mind connected with another mind. And the research on peer and authority pressures is so clear that this is the escape condition to doing nothing or just being compliant. Peer pressure, the authority pressure, both of those sets of experiments, as soon as you introduce an ally to the person who was the subject of the experiment, the amount of compliance and the amount of deference to authority goes down substantially and in some cases to zero. What does that mean? Well, it means that In the Milgram experiments, famously, when there was these subjects brought into a room, there was a a pretend experiment where people had to give shocks to people that would, if they got questions wrong, and the experimenter was dressed in a white coat and looked all very medical. And these poor subjects brought in off the street in New Haven, and they were given this machine they said was shocking the people for getting the wrong answer. And, you know, 46% went all the way to a lethal shock in this experiment. Believing that it was actually lethal. Believing that they were really, and this is when the subject was screaming and hollering and crying out in pain. 
because the white-coated guy kept saying, it's all part of the experiment. It's your job to keep increasing the shock. They introduced, and there were 47 different versions of this experiment. The most famous is just the person alone. But one of the conditions was they had two other people in the room with the subject who were confederates of the experimenter, but who would say out loud, this is immoral. You shouldn't be doing this. And the scientists would be saying, do it, do it. And the other subjects would say, I can't go forward with this. I can't lend my name to this. They were supposedly part of the experiment too. They were like pulling other levers, but they were programmed to say this was wrong. And when they put that condition on, nobody went to the lethal level. (laughs) They all quit. So what you have is this condition where there's a social experience of camaraderie, of a fellow feeling of, you know, me too, and everybody's, quote, courage, their willingness to persist and and to follow their values just goes up astronomically. So this reaching out at the ownership stage of this ODA process is really important because then you're going to find the courage of your convictions, that is, you're going to become more confident and certain that you're actually not being, you're not wrong, you're not getting gaslighted here, you know, you know that there's something real. And then you go to step three, which is survey your decisions. That is, what's a decision set option? And again, consulting with others, really important, because in any organizational context, there are going to be other people who know about other options. They have different social networks, they have different access to different levers. And so, Even as a warehouse employee, you know, you go and talk to a colleague and the colleague says, you know, this supervisor is a really good guy. You want to talk to him, maybe. And you go, well, will you come talk to him with me? Sure. Let's go both talk to him. So now we've got one option, talk to the supervisor. And there may be other options. There's a formal complaint procedure. There's an anonymous tip line. There's all the different things that might be out there, but you got to find them and make a list. And then consult and make a decision about what the right thing to do is, what the best thing to do is under the circumstances. And then you go to the A of the ODA loop, and that's act, take action. Uh, So you made your decision, you surveyed your options, you took the action, you talked to the supervisor. And now the loop, ODA loop, the loop is adjust. What does the supervisor tell you? Okay, let's go back and reset this whole little wheel and keep moving forward. These values conflicts are not one-offs. It's more like a campaign than it is an event. And so you just have to be patient and small steps, work the process incrementally and do your best to find the best option that'll fix the problem so that the injury stops or the fraud stops or reports get reviewed by another set of eyes or ethics and compliance becomes part of the process instead of getting ignored. How how do you keep your emotions in check in this process? The book is called The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. (laughs) So I believe that done well and done effectively, you protect your job and you actually gain credibility. So I think the fact that you've got allies and you get good information increases your confidence, which then increases your conviction and makes you more persuasive. I teach persuasion and Lyndon Johnson once said, what convinces is conviction. And so you become a more credible messenger as you gain more context and information and practice talking about this problem in a way that's congenial and not just threatening to people. And as the book goes on, I talk about a lot of different tools that people can use depending on the circumstances. And one of which is engage in 
constructive dialogue about the issue, not just confrontation. Do you have to be a leader to do this? No. I think you have to be willing to lead. So again, I think of leadership as a verb, not a uh, noun. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you're taking responsibility for something and advancing it, you are leading. Now, you may not have a job title that suggests you're a leader, but at that point, you're leading. And I think that when you're done with this campaign, maybe someone else will say, wow, you know, Mark is a leader. Look at the way he handled that ethical conflict with the sales manager. But Mark, you may not think of yourself as a leader. You may think of yourself as an accountant again, you know, and you're just a person of conscience who took initiative because you felt it was important for the organization to make sure that they got this right. That's exactly why I asked the question, because, yeah. you know, sometimes people think, well, hey, I'm just lowly me. You know, I'm not a manager or supervisor or vice president or whatever. So is the organization going to take me seriously? Right. I think one of the barriers to being an effective person of conscience is letting your role limit you. So I talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. Letting roles limit you is a self-imposed limitation on speaking up for your values. You may be low. You may be unimportant. Okay, your job is to get this issue to someone who isn't low and who isn't unimportant, who you can hand the problem to and do it in an effective way so you're protected and the problem gets solved. So it's a way of defining the problem. As an owner of the problem, it doesn't mean it's your job to fix it. It means it's your job to give it to the person who can fix it and persuade them that it's their job to do it. And, you know, in my work at the University of Pennsylvania, at one point I was several years engaged in getting the university to not build a wall around the university. There was a big crime wave in West Philly and some bright lights and the board of trustees said, well, here's an answer. We'll build a wall around Penn. That'll take care of it. And I lived in West Philadelphia and I didn't really feature the idea of a wall between me and my job as really a good thing to do. Plus, it was, as a value, incredibly elitist. Yeah, right. Thanks for calling it out, right, yeah. But I was an assistant professor. I didn't have the power to stop this initiative. But it took two years, and I got all the right people, and I got everybody mobilized, and I got out of the way when other people took ownership. And I made a great coalition. And at the end of the day, not only did they not build a wall, they hired a vice president for administration at Penn who turned our university into a model of community partnership mm. with West Philadelphia. They built a public school that was for the neighborhood. They put in all kinds of security measures that would make it safer for everybody to live there. They created new majors in different schools. They went nuts. And I was like a little little engine that could down the bottom of this whole thing. You didn't tell this story in your book. This is pretty great. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Bravo. Yeah, well, you know, I teach negotiation. I teach all this stuff about organizational change, and I practice it. I was a lawyer before I came to Wharton, and I came to Wharton late, so I was a grown-up when I got there. <laughs> and I take this stuff seriously. It's not just an academic exercise for me. When someone waves an ethical or values problem at me, I step up. We just had the same thing happen recently with a, a problem in our executive education effort. And this is just in the last six months. And I was part of the leadership team to try to make it right. So, you know, these are tools and I think they work whatever level you happen to be at. I'm at a very senior level now. So my leverage is much higher, but that doesn't mean that I'm effective. It doesn't mean everybody agrees with me. But even when I was a lowly assistant professor, I actually got a reputation in the middle of that initiative 
they called me the dean of West Philly, <laughs> even though I was an assistant professor, because I was so annoyingly persistent about this. Well done. Richard, we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and transition into what we cleverly call the heartbeat round. And what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions about your life philosophy and influences. And in this time, have you answered each one with a quick, instinctive answer, in other words, in a heartbeat. You ready to play? I'm ready to go. All right. One thing this past year and a half has taught you. Family first. Your definition of success. Be yourself. A song from the 1960s you think remains especially relevant today. Let it be. A leader from any era you greatly admire. Benjamin Franklin. One book from any genre you believe everyone listening in should read. Influence by Robert Cialdini. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. It's not going to get better unless we make it better. A lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Read, 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 read. <laughs> A trait you most admire in other people. Honesty. One value every company should embed into their culture. People first. Amen. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. They lose sight of the true goal. Your synonym for the word heart. Passion. What currently ranks number one in your bucket list? I want to create a program for nurse managers to help them be better at conflict management. And one thing you wish you could teach every workplace manager around the globe. Believe in yourself. Richard, I've done this probably 75 times, and I don't think I can count on one hand the number of people who actually gave me heartbeat answers. It's so tempting to explain your answers, and you did it with great discipline. So thank you very much. <laughs> this was great. And some really clever, very interesting answers. So thank you for going through that with me. Sure, Mark. It's my pleasure. It's a good, it's a Zen exercise. You know, you got to listen to your heart. Here, here. Well, Richard, before we go here, one of the things that I like to do is to ask my guests if they could leave the audience with one small piece of insight that they can take away and mull over at the end of the podcast. So what would yours be? I go back to something we've talked about, but I just think it's really can't think about it and iterate enough. In addition to whatever your professional role may be, whether you're a lawyer or a manager or a tech exec or an entrepreneur, never, never lose sight of the fact that you're a person of conscience. So you're a person of conscience who is an entrepreneur, a person of conscience who is a tech exec. And if you remember that, then when something happens, instead of saying career or conscience or focusing on your anxiety, you just have to ask yourself, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? And when you ask that question, the answer usually is do something. And then the question is what? And then you're off to the races. So I think remembering that you're a person of conscience as part of your core identity is the one thing I'd leave your listeners with. And we will leave it there. Thank you so very much. On behalf of my audience, it's wonderful reconnecting with you. And thank you so very, very much for joining me, Richard. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. As many of you know, our goal with every episode is to reinforce the thesis that leadership, which intentionally balances the mind with the heart, yields infinitely greater performance. And that this message now resonates so strongly with people all around the world shows just how anxious all of us are to see organizations make the big pivot and embrace management practices that are known to be more suitable to the needs of our 21st century workforce. 
So I want to thank you very much for reading my book, Lead from the Heart, and especially for tuning in and introducing us to your friends. The expansion of our audience is the most valuable metric we have to validate that our podcasts are helpful and worthwhile. And so you very much play a huge role in motivating us to continue. And as always, I want to thank my wonderful team and key supporters, which include Ken Boynt, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my sound engineer and editor, Mr. Eric Oz. And until next time, I will leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And this is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.